Bobby Neptune and Van Morrison taking <laughs> you through the night and into the mystic. <laughs> and that's the opener, Bobby. You're well welcome. done. <laughs> Are you recording? Normally, yeah, I was. Yes. <laughs> Normally, it's Tyler that does. Normally, it's me doing hot cow, brown cow. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace. This is episode 216, and this is a Modern Huntsman production. Uh, I recorded this show in the mountains of Colorado. Uh, Tyler Sharp joins me as co-host, and we chat to photographer and filmmaker Bobby Neptune. Bobby's fascinating life has led him from the depths of refugee camps to the skies above the Great Migration in Kenya. It's an incredibly moving conversation, and it was a great privilege to spend some time with him. As mentioned in the show, Bobby contributed to Modern Huntsman Volume 8, uh, you can read his story if you visit uh, www.modernhuntsman.com. You can find Volume 8 and purchase it now, along with all of the other volumes, 1 through to 9. But quickly, before we get into it, a shout out to the top tier patrons this month, who include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Esh Stalking, Mark Zabrowski, and a new top tier patron. Uh, and forgive me if I butcher your surname, feel free to email in and tell me how to pronounce it. Uh, Dick, Dick Ekstromer. I think that's how it is. Thank you very much. And I'm sorry, uh, you should have been mentioned the last couple of weeks. And um, I just, I didn't get around to like updating my list that I read off. <laughs> um, so thank you very much for all of your support. And if you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. And if you would like to contact the show for some reason, and quite a few of you have in the last few weeks, the recommendations of people who I should be interviewing, um, info at paceproductionsuk.com. You'll also find that in the description for the show notes, along with uh, links to Bobby's work and a link to Modern Huntsman. Bobby Neptune, welcome, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Thanks, it's good to be here. Yeah, well, we've I've had... The privilege of spending a handful of days with you and a whole bunch of other amazing people prior to us recording this podcast now in the hills in Colorado, in northern Colorado. Um, so why don't we start off by, because Tyler's here as well. You! Uh, my responsible co-host. Yes. Or not so responsible co-host. Yeah. Um, doing a little recap of the event we were just at because we had so many amazing creative people in the same space basically having fun basically having fun <laughs> but also yeah. re-energizing one another we were just yeah. talking about that earlier how, yeah. how was it for you yeah so i mean those sorts of events are, are something that i rarely get to participate in um you know i, I work mostly in a land cruiser by myself in the middle of not rural, rural africa yeah it's not bad i'm not complaining here at all but i don't get that creative interaction that that you know there's not sort of that overarching community of creatives that all end up in a land cruiser by themselves in the middle of rural Africa. So, you know, for everybody to kind of come together and be amongst, you know, a like-minded group of people um, who all care about the natural world, who all have deep connections to the natural world, and who are all creators. I think that was a really cool thing for me to, to come into that space, be really encouraged about, A, the work I'm doing, and also to turn around and be able to encourage others at that same time to, you know, sh basically, you know, push their work forward. It just felt like this really beautiful couple of days where we we're all fishing and playing and, and being a part of that, that natural world that we all care about so much and all encouraging each other. So an uh, incredible amount of gratitude to be able to participate in, in an event like that. One of the things that was so awesome for me was this 
exchange of ideas and this very clear appreciation to want to know what other people are doing mm. because you were fascinated by other creatives and their minds and the projects they're working on just because that's the kind of people that were in the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I was talking with Austin Alvarado, who's a filmmaker, just finished Deep in the Heart, um, which is a film on Texas wildlife. And, and we were talking about the Rio Grande and its significance in the ecosystem as a whole and wildlife surrounding it. And like, you know, to, to be able to chat with another filmmaker and photographer who's doing incredible things and to be able to kind of find correlations and similarities between the work that we're doing in East Africa and the work that he's doing in, in South Texas and on the Mexico border. I mean, what an incredibly enjoyable process that was to just feel encouraged to be around that that type of people. And so. it was definitely re-energized, wasn't it? Oh, oh big time. And I, I think it's really interesting too, Bobby, because you know we go way back as friends, and but we've been sort of on opposite sides of the East the East African spectrum, right? Your work is mostly in, in photographic and guiding and conservation. Most of my work has been in, in hunting. And so I think for us to be able to host an event and have you and Austin Mann and Austin Alvarado the Austins with a Z and a few other people who really had no experience around um, rifles or shotguns or really understanding the amount of work that goes in into managing a landscape and the wildlife. And so for us to be the ones to get to bring everybody together um, and, and everyone was so uh, they took such care and had such sensitivity to everybody's different background and experience level and all that kind of stuff. But to see you guys feel comfortable and, and get excited. I mean, at the end of the day, we were shooting clays and you were like, Oh my God, this is addicting. You were <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it was incredible. This, this is not something that I do on a regular yeah. basis by yeah. any means that it was, you know, I've shot clays in my past, but not, not on any regular basis. And, oh my gosh. It was incredibly enjoyable. And I think, that was, you know, having a, a whole line of people behind me who are just a encouraging me and be like, yeah, you got it. No, shoot lower, etc. And just yeah. like kind of helping me go through the process as a very much as very much a beginner yeah. um, to kind of make some sense of what I was doing. And the the, the actually the longer rifles um, that we were shooting at, you know, 350 yards, 650 yards, a thousand yards. That was something that was really fascinating, and I have never done before. Yeah. Um, and you know, to have I think it was actually you, Tyler, who yeah. was kind of walking me through the process of, of kind of what I'm looking for and how to, you know, kind of put it up to my chin and look through the scope and all those different pieces. I mean, it, it, something that I'm completely unfamiliar yeah. with um, because I, I, that's just not my background whatsoever. Yeah. But to feel comfortable in that space and to learn a tremendous amount, it was incredibly enjoyable. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately, you know, Byron and I's mission with this whole thing is to prove that there are individuals and communities of people where someone who's not a hunter or really doesn't have that experience can come in and be completely welcomed and treated as an equal and as a friend, learn something and, and get to decide for yourself if you like it or not. Right. And it may be something you never do again, but you'll always think, Hey, you know what? That was an awesome weekend. And, and I learned some new skills. But what I think is really cool about all of that is like it, it comes back to all of us finding ways to share the experiences that we've had in wilderness in our own sort of way. You know, for me, that's photographic work across sub-Saharan Africa. Um, for you, that's obviously, as you said, a lot of a lot more hunting. But like we all come to this this similar space uh, from very different backgrounds, and to be able to share those experiences and our love for those spaces together. Yeah, that's that's a really unique yeah. thing. 
Um, and I think it's something that we're responsible for as as users of wilderness and as users of, of nature and as people who spend a lot of our time in those spaces. The more we can take those experiences, distill them down, either through, you know, communications, photos, stories, um, films, etc., or through personal hands-on experience to be able to share um, those sorts of things with others who don't participate in that on a regular basis. In this particular instance, it was you teaching me how to shoot a long-range rifle. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, that's forever changed me. Um, yeah, I'm incredibly grateful for it. So. Before we carry on, we're going to move to that table. Yeah, I yeah, think sure. so. I was, like, I was, I was just about to say that. I, I, know. I think we're actually going to get some rain, <laughs> which is fine, nice. But, uh, yeah, also so we don't get rained on. That's probably me. Yeah. It got warm, and yeah, I just wasn't really interested in it. It's when it, it's when it gets warm at the end. It's just like, Ugh. yeah. And you Do think, I have to? Well, and there's certain. <laughs> we could probably even press record for this. <laughs> well, we're, there we are, were carried on there are certain we're now beers. Dry, yeah, and there's no wind. Yeah. There are certain beers which are meant to be drank warm, like yeah. a Tusker. A, I think you know, Kilimanjaro. A, a Tusker or a Kilimanjaro, yeah. which are these is East African supposed beers. Supposed to be drunk warm. Well, you mean it can be drunk warm? It is the best warm beer you'll ever have. It's not a good. It's not a good beer. No, but hang on. It's the best warm beer you'll ever have because it's a Tusker and because you normally drink it in Africa. That's what makes yes. it a good because beer. Because you're normally drinking it in a moment where the sun is going down and you're surrounded by wildlife, but it is by no means a good beer. No. You, you know, it is not. It's a circumstantial beer. It is, it is because, circumstantial. Because Tyler and I picked up some beer and we were very grateful for picking up this beer. Where, where were we? We were in Denver. We were in Denver. <laughs> uh, on the way through, and we picked up, a friend of ours had picked up these couple of crates of Tusker for us. And we, then we drank it when we got to Montana. <laughs> we were like, <laughs> we took the first sip. We were like, it just does not. It just it not doesn't same. taste the same. Not, yeah. This is not the same. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, mean, I feel is. like having a cold almost magnifies the fact that it's kind of a shitty beer. <laughs> very much so. Very, very much so. Anyway, Tusker. Yeah. Well, that was a good. That was a good segue yeah. uh, away from what we were talking about. Let's rewind a second, boys. Sure. So. Um, you're, I mean, you're, you've been telling us about these amazing projects that you've been involved in, some cool stuff that we can't talk about that you're going to be doing in the future. What is your background? How, how does an American dude end up in East Africa as a filmmaker? <laughs> yeah. And photographer. I mean, are you in for the long story totally. or the short story? <laughs> totally. This is that's what podcasts are all about. Um, yeah. So I mean, I I grew up in rural Oklahoma. You know, a town of thirty thousand people. Some rural Oklahoma impressions. Right. <laughs> Maybe later. We'll save that for later. Yeah, rural Oklahoma. Um, you know, a town of thirty thousand people, and and ended up sort of you know, I went to to university in, in Arkansas. So, you know, one state over started, you know, these kind of, I'm getting out of here very, very slowly. Yeah. And in university, um, had a roommate who had loads of National Geographic, had a subscription and had this whole wall of National Geographic magazines. And, and through that, I mean, I, kind of like he started building in me this curiosity of like, oh, there's more outside of rural Oklahoma. Like I, you know, I kind of grew up, unfortunately, in this space where not much existed outside of rural Oklahoma. Like you were, it, you were very, it was very rare for somebody to leave that space. And, and so gradually kind of being taught the world by National Geographic magazine and seeing that there were other beautiful things um, and cultures and people groups and and geographies outside of rural Oklahoma. Not that rural Oklahoma is beautiful, but it, it's, you know, 
I, it was just this curiosity that was kind of developed. And in university, we started a film production company where we were doing wedding videos and, and photos for different organizations. I mean, pretty meaningless work. Like how, how most filmmakers start. Yeah, exactly. How we all get going <laughs> is we find somebody to pay us for what we're trying to do. Yeah. And it so happens that weddings might be the easiest yeah. possible outcome. <laughs> And, um, and so we, we had all these cameras uh, as a sophomore, junior in, in university, which in first, second, third year. And we just kind of got bored doing those, those sorts of projects and ended up um, spinning a globe, wanting to take a trip, ended up in southern Mexico for a, a couple of months on summer break one year um, and started building these films for a, a surfer organization that was working down there. And um, fell in love with this process of we're learning a new language, we're eating new foods, particularly tacos, and drinking, you know, Coronas because we're in Mexico. And, and having these whole life-changing experiences sort of around building media for a cool nonprofit or NGO that's doing good work. And, um, and so Mexico was kind of this life-changing event for me that I, I wasn't expecting that when we went in. I wasn't really like thinking this is going to be really any more than just we're going to go down and eat some tacos and surf and make a few videos. Turns out I couldn't live without being, you know, in this space where I was growing and learning and making films. And so we... Uh, planned a trip to Mozambique, to southern Mozambique, for the following Christmas break. So my last year of university. Why Mozambique? It was a, fr a friend of a friend that had a connection in Mozambique to this HIV orphanage that was okay. working in southern Mozambique. And they, you know, we'd sent some emails to them and they said, yeah, come, you know, bring your cameras. You can build us a little sponsor child campaign. And so we did. We went and built this little campaign that, you know, helped them raise some funds for, for the work that they were doing. And um, we came back uh, after, you know, a week of missing my last semester of, of university <laughs> and launched that campaign. And literally that next week, we were getting phone calls of like, can you come do this for us? Can Amazing. You come? And we're seniors last year of university. So we're like, yeah, we'll come to Paraguay. Yeah, we'll go to Honduras. Yeah, we'll go to Zambia. And so we ended up the next six months, uh, a buddy and I um, kind of traveling all over the world, building these campaigns for, for nonprofits um, that help them kind of connect back to their source of support um, and to raise funds for the, you know, the cool work that they were doing. And, um, and ended up as a part of that project um, in East Africa, which for some reason in all of those travels and the and that kind of year of back to back to back travel became this place that I just immediately fell in love with. It, you know, a part it's of easily done. Yeah. A part of that was the wildlife. A part of that was the culture and the people. A part of that was it was sunny in 75 all year. <laughs> and and Kiswahili Kabiza. And <laughs> sure. And and it was freezing cold back home. And you know, it was just easy to be in East Africa. And so I fell in love with it and ended up, you know, spending a large chunk of the next couple of years of my life in and out of Uganda, Rwanda, Tanzania, and Kenya. Um, and yeah, that, that kind of, you know, in that time period decided, hey, I'm going to stay here. This is going to be the base of operations instead of flying back and forth between the U.S. and East Africa or Europe. Um, I'm going to stay here. This is going to be home for a little while. And so, yeah, that was, that was kind of what got me to East Africa originally. And yeah, 15, year, 15 years later, I'm still there. Yeah. yeah. So for, how did you connect? <coughs> with Bobby? I, I think it was through Austin and Esther, right? It was through Austin and Esther. Yeah. Yeah. We were, I was spending my summers, um, at least kind of six to eight weeks of my summers away from the chaos of mm. East Africa. 
in Montana, mm-hmm. which is where you were kind of right in the process of moving into. I, I hadn't think. moved. I, there was yeah. about three summers in a row that I just came up for the summer and left the Texas heat and just started staying longer and longer. And I think yeah. that's, I think Austin mm-hmm. said, Hey, Bobby's out there. He's super cool. You should meet him. And we ended up meeting in Montana. We and, met in Livingston at yep. a bar in Livingston. Yep. With the mm-hmm. owl, the is owl that what bar. It was? Yep. Yeah. And, uh, met at the owl. And then I think I had a trip planned to Tanzania mm-hmm. that I think that was fall. Maybe it was October, November. I can't remember when it was and came over and actually you were at your house mm-hmm. and stayed there for a little bit. And we got to go to the Muthega club and a couple yeah. of things like that. And then since then we've been ships passing in East African Montana. I would stay at Bobby's house in Nairobi. He wasn't there. He would stay at my house in Montana when I wasn't there. We'd like write each other notes and, yeah, and like, yeah, leave just... coffee and be like, "Sorry, I drank some of your scotch." Or I think even yeah. even twice while I stayed at your house in Montana, he was coming like briefed like, uh-huh. shortly yeah. after we were both leaving. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it really was. We were your just crossing was each even other. Parked there at one yeah, point. I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I had I had this kind of dual life in a way where I was spending my you know my years in most of the year in East Africa, and then I'd come to to mm. summer or come for like a Christmas break. Yeah. To, to Montana. Mm-hmm. And we'd overlap during the summers mm-hmm. and do some adventures. But most of the time when I was there in the winter, you were visiting family or elsewhere. And so I'd stay at your house and then you'd come during the summer when I was gone. And we were just, we were just ships in the nights for years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so how did your work evolve over that period once you started spending more time and basing yourself in East Africa? Sure. So a lot, of my, a lot of my work started out kind of sheer photojournalism. I was working for different NGOs and different magazines and newspapers kind of um, all over the world. Um, and did, all, did that all just come because you did something that someone else saw or were you seeking that out? Yes, both seeking it out, but I I don't wanna, I don't want to take any credit for that because I think a lot of the credit was actually just being in the right location at the right mm-hmm. time. You know, when you plant yourself in a place like Nairobi or Eastern Africa as a whole, um, you typically just get some work because you're one of the few people who are doing that sort of work in that particular location. Um, and so, yeah, in, in those early years, I was doing a lot of work for different aid organizations in and out of conflict zones, in and out of refugee camps, a lot of the really like, difficult parts of the world. Um, and I'd come back to Nairobi, spend a couple of weeks, try to make sense of those experiences, and then I'd pretty much go back to a refugee camp. Um, and and in those years, um, yeah, it, that that sort of work took its toll on me. It was it was a yeah, really. I was going to ask. I mean, how do how do you process that? A lot of counseling and a lot, a lot of like downtime. Actually, one of the most effective thing effective things I've done to kind of every time I would come back from one of those conflict zones is I'd actually plant a new plant in our garden. Um, and I got really into gardening for a little while, and that's a complete sidetrack. But it was this really like. Oh, as long as you water it and take care of it, it will it will flourish. And um, in you know even coming back from these really dark places in the world, like coming back, planting a plant, seeing the garden, seeing the flowers come to life, it was this really like life giving thing for me for a really long time. Oh, total sidebar there, but but this was this was part of your way of making uh, sense of the world, exactly, very much so. Because and, the stuff that you were seeing and experienced is so visceral compared to what anybody it's like yeah i've i've seen footage and photographs from refugee camps but you were there yes and and the footage when you see it on tv is nothing like when you're actually sitting there in front of it i mean see i don't i don't really want to get into it now but 
the difficulties that come with that are life altering forever. Um, and it, it changes your perspective in so many ways to be, you know, almost a participant in, in what's occurring in those spaces. Um, anyways, that was a lot of the initial work I was doing when I was in East Africa. Um, I would come back from that and do my little gardening. And then slowly over time, my girlfriend at the time um, was kind of taking me out on safari for the first time. She had been there for about five to 10 years before I had lived in Nairobi originally from the States. Um, and so she had, she knew Kenya a little bit better than I did. And so she would start kind of like, oh, let's, this weekend, let's go down to the Maasai Mara. Oh, this weekend, let's go up to Samburu National Reserve. And so we started doing these little weekend trips to, to the point where um, you know, I would fly in from an assignment on Friday and, you know, Friday night she would have the car packed and we would be, sounds <laughs> awesome. pick, pick me up from the airport, <laughs> yeah. drive, drive through the <laughs> night the to get to, right get there, to the yeah. Mara. I, we'd spend Saturday, Sunday, maybe part of Monday in the Mara. And then, you know, we'd come back, I'd do laundry real quick at the house. And then I'd be on the flight out Tuesday morning to the next location. And, and over the course of like three, maybe four years of doing that, um, I began to fall in love with Kenya and fall in love with the wild spaces and the wildlife that exist in, in, in the country. And I started to slowly see changes. And I, I think it, it so took... What, what years are we talking here? So you're Just talking kind of 2014, 15, 2016, okay. 2017, kind of in that timeline. Um, I started to start, to, you know... I was still new to the wildlife thing. I, I really hadn't spent a bunch of time. I grew up in rural Oklahoma. We don't have wildlife, period. Like we have cows and we have oil, right? Like that's, that's about all that we have. And, you know, our activity would be go out and, you know, cow tipping. Kind of, kind of a joke. I'm not sure it actually works. It, it but translates. Like, yeah. It translates. Yeah, exactly. We have cow tipping. Um, anyways. You really were backwards. Yeah, very, very backwards. <laughs> But we, we just didn't have that. So I was starting to kind of make sense of like, oh, you know, look, look at you know, how the gazelle moves through the landscape. And, you know, when it, when it pops out here and there's going to be a cheetah that's kind of paying attention to it and, and kind of start to learn these ecosystems a little bit more. And as I did, I started to see um, in 2017 in particular, we had a really big drought in, across most of northern Kenya and really the whole of East Africa as a whole. And our wildlife numbers sort of plummeted during that time. And to me, I think I was paying more attention because I was out there every weekend to, to start to see that like the leopard that we saw in the tree every weekend that we were in Sambu wasn't there anymore. So and sure, this and sure wildlife, change. sure wildlife yeah. migrate and they move and they're not in the same places every time. That's kind of the beauty of wildlife. But we were, I think I was starting to see the foundation for what became my work um, in the latter years. Cause we were starting to see these declines in wildlife and I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have the empirical evidence. It was all anecdotal at the time. But as I started kind of looking more into it, I started to realize that the declines that we were seeing across East Africa in wildlife were pretty dramatic. Mm -hmm. And I say this a lot, but the, there was a study that came out about four years ago. Between 1977 and 2016, Kenya lost 70% of its wildlife, yeah. which roughly is on par with what's occurred in the rest of the world from a wildlife loss, give or take, obviously. But from a biomass perspective, we are a, we have way more wildlife than anywhere else yeah, in the rest huge. of the world. So it, from a biomass perspective, that's a huge loss in wildlife. And so I think what I was starting to piece together was that overarching trend. And so in, in beginning to make sense of it, I was like, well, I'm a photographer. I have storytelling capability. 
why is the rest of the world not aware of these losses which are occurring? And so slowly started to kind of formulate some plans about how we can tell stories of Kenya's wild places and look at those losses and try to frame them in a way where we, we understand how important wildlife and natural spaces are for us as humanity and also look at the declines and have real tangible things that which you can do to mitigate those losses. And so that sort of slowly became my work um, after I wanted, I wanted out of the refugee camps. But, so I was finding this peace amongst the wildlife and those wild spaces in Kenya. Which and, was still a human interaction because it's about humans in the landscapes. So you were keeping that human and, and social element to your work, but integrating the sort of natural landscape. Very much so. And I, I think what, what's really critical to, to that whole interaction was that how much those spaces were giving to me in the recovery from um, kind of the traumas that I witnessed in, in those okay. difficult places. And, um, you know, part of my story goes on to be a recovery from even a more dramatic trauma later on. But that sort of set the stages of like, this space has given me so much in recovering from these these difficult things that I've seen. Now, how do I repay it for what it's given to See, me? This was your way of kind of giving back. In a way, yeah. I mean, it's pretty weak and, you know, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't even do any justice, all things considered. But it was kind of my way of going, this place has given me so much. How do I make sure that other people can have that same experience and and make sure that this wildlife and the wild spaces are there. And you spoke to that somewhat in your contribution for volume eight. Yes, on. I did. Exactly. I mean a lot of this conversation is echoes of of the the story I wrote for volume eight. Yeah. yeah. Which and, was what an incredible spread time. Yeah. I mean the photos in that were crazy. We've had so many people reach out and be like, man, we're you know, we've obviously tried to point everybody your way and that kind of thing too, but you know, me knowing you for a while, at what point did the para motoring, mm -hmm. right? Where did, where did that come in? Because I know a lot of it was on the ground at first, and then you kind of took to the air, and, and your work took on this whole new, sure. uh, not just your work, but I mean, it defined your, your personal life too. I yeah, mean, very uh, much so. Yeah, that was a very groundbreaking thing for me. I think it was very gradual, though. So, so wait, hang on. Before, just for anyone who's not familiar <laughs> with paramotoring, why don't you describe yeah, sure. what this is? So paramotoring or power, motorized paragliding. I'll, yeah. I'll kind of use the two terms interchangeably. A motorized paraglider, you have to be familiar with a paraglider first. So paraglider is you know, a soft parachute-style wing that uh, goes up above you. And you know, most people will find a hillside with a nice, gentle, upslope breeze, inflate the paraglider, run up, find, you know, take, take flight, find some thermals, and kind of climb. Um, it's a very lightweight sort of method of flight. Um, and so paragliding, you know, you, you typically see it on mountain ridges. You see it um, in, in areas where there are significant updrafts uh, to keep that non-motorized, basically parachute aloft. Motorized paragliding is the same concept, but without any of the thermals or without any of the updraft. You kind of create that yourself. So I wear about an 80-pound backpack that has a 130 or 180cc engine on it that basically has a propeller. Uh, and so we need about a football pitch or a soccer pitch um, to take off on. And the wing lays out behind you. You've got this backpack with a big picture it like an airplane propeller because that's what it is and you kind of take off running down the, down the football pitch the wing comes up above you and you you clamp your left hand down throttle full on 
and you you kind of just run your heart out <laughs> until you either fall flat on your face and abort the thing, or you end up with your feet off the ground. Sounds a little ridiculous. It's incredibly ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, anybody who watches the process is like, that's absurd. Once you're in the air, it's this beautiful, like yeah. you can be carving turns and playing around with your geographical features. But on the takeoffs, you just look a fool. Yeah. You absolutely look a fool because you're trying to run faster than you possibly can with 90, 80 to 90 pounds on your backpack, depending on yeah. how much fuel you can you can carry. And the thing is huge. So it's you know probably a, a meter in diameter diameter of mm. this ring that's around your back. Um, I'm doing it a deep injustice because you should just stop what listening to this for a second and go Google YouTube you sure. know, or go YouTube a yeah. paraglider or paramotor takeoff yeah. and you'll see some hilarious of people <laughs> falling on their face, which was me for right. a long time until yeah. I got better at it. So what was your end though? You must so, have seen somebody do that and thought that looks cool. Okay, so this goes back to college roommate. Um, there was the a, same one? The same one. <laughs> um, same college roommate, guy named Jeremy Hayes, who is still a dear friend of mine, had the subscription to National Geographic. Yeah. And there was this photographer called George Steinmetz who had this machine – and um, and he they published a story of his in one of the National Geographic's, and there were these beautiful pictures, and he was flying this machine, and I was like, that's what I want to do when I grow up, like that's what I want to be, because kind of growing up, I was either going to be a photographer or I was going to be a pilot. Those were my two career so choices. Thought, that, this is perfect. So this is like going to combine <laughs> both of them. Yeah. This is going to like put everything together, and this is my career choice. Obviously, it's a ridiculous thought, but. Um, so I, from a long, you know, from a sophomore in university, I had wanted to do this uh, and I had learned to fly fixed wing aircraft prior to that. Okay. Just, just because like, so you had aviation. Skills. So I had aviation in my background uh, and I learned to fly fixed wing because I was like, you know what? I'm never going to learn paramotor or motor, motor, do motorized paralyze. It's just not going to be a thing. Um, so I learned to fly fixed wing, but fixed wing is very expensive and very cumbersome. And you really can't, you're, you're moving across the landscape at 120 miles an hour. Yeah. So how do you photograph something when you're moving past it at 120 miles an hour? It's much more difficult. And so I ended up kind of like slowly phasing out of general aviation and learned to paraglide one of the summers that I was in Montana. And in All that- right, so you learned here. Yeah. So I learned huh. to paraglide in, in the States and- um, and as a, after the paragliding training, the, the instructor had a motorized paraglider. He's like, well, you can just give it a go. And so I did. I was like, you know, at first time I fell on my face, second time I fell on my face, third time I actually made it up in the air. And I was like, this is really difficult, way more difficult than I thought it would ever be. But I like in that one flight, I was like, okay, this is it. I have to get one of these. And so I put in an order for one. Uh, got the wing and, you know, the paraglider wing and everything, and then got the, um, the actual motor, the engine part of it and put it in my check bag. And <laughs> but I, I bought a big like Pelican. I drained out all the fuel and the oil from it and put it in my check bag and, um, flew United Airlines all the way from, <laughs> from, from Fayetteville, Arkansas at the time. Uh, to Nairobi and uh, got to Nairobi and, you know, customs in these rural African airports can be a bit grumpy. So they're like, what is this? I was like, oh, it's, a, it's an aircraft. They're like, okay, carry on. <laughs> really? Yeah. Not a problem? Yeah. Yeah. Not a problem at all. Try so that I, with a rifle scope. You'll yeah. be there for two no, hours. No, totally. You know, you'll yeah. be in jail or yeah, something. Maybe, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the outcomes could be far worse. <laughs> yeah. So they, they were just like, okay, carry on. I guess, you know, we don't understand this. So it has to be something. <laughs> that, not even yeah. a bribe. No, not even a bribe. Well, not even a bribe. I ended up paying 16% VAT, which you pay on yeah, every whatever. grocery yeah. that you buy anyways. So 
Um, so I get this thing into Kenya and I realize like I've only flown this thing once. Like I still don't know what I'm doing. So, and, and listen, please hear me out. If you want to go paragliding, motorized paragliding, please go get real training. More than once. More than once. Um, okay. There's great outfits that's, in, so that's the top in Florida and yeah. Dubai that do wonderful training. Mm. I learned everything on YouTube. So, <laughs> I mean, I basically was like trying to figure out how to mount the engine back and like everything that I know I learned on YouTube, which is not what you should do. Uh, and I, sure, I had plenty of face plants. This is not where I thought this conversation was going. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had plenty of face plants, plenty of falls, plenty of like, you know, when you come in for a landing, I mean, I just would eat it just every single time. And then I slowly started getting better and better because basically my girlfriend and I were just going out into a field in, you know, northern Nairobi where there were some coffee plants and a football pitch and you know you'd have a hundred kids like lined up to see this weirdo try to do something we're not even sure what's going on but we're going to watch this weirdo do something and uh, and I learned to learn to fly um and I was terrible at it it took me you know 20 or 30 40 hours before I started to kind of feel a little bit more comfortable with it but that like it was my third flight that I brought my camera up with me um, and ever since then, like, you know, I was learning to fly in this coffee field. The first image I made from the paraglider was of these coffee trees in, you know, a perfect row. Um, they're, they're these kind of small, almost like orange, like shrubs that, um, that are planted in big rows and we're a big coffee exporting company or country in Kenya. And, and that picture has stayed with me for a really, really long time. And I, I, from there basically took the, the paraglider all over Kenya wow. and, it was this realization for me when I did start to see these landscapes from above because there you can very clearly see in so many cases hard dividing lines between what is a conservation area and what is not. So whether that's peri-urban sprawl or whether that's agricultural areas or whether that's just a highway, um, like you know linear infrastructure that's cutting right through the middle of a, of a conservation zone. And so we, we started to see these large landscapes and and how their borders were working and how wildlife in East Africa, we don't keep our wildlife behind fences. So these wildlife are kind of trying to maneuver through these migration corridors. And there's no easier way to see that movement than from above. And there's no easier way to see how quickly those corridors are being cut off. Yeah. So um, there might be no fences, but there's still barriers. But there's still barriers. There's there's urban sprawl. I mean, our population in Kenya is skyrocketing. And so in order to feed and house and water that population, our, our human population, um, you know, we, we're increasing the amount of farmland that we're having to put under, under agriculture. Um, we're, you know, all these different kind of pieces that are getting rid of traditional wildlife habitat and it's really easy to see that when you're flying from above and really easy to be like oh this is this clearly this area used to be a wildlife migration corridor and now it's not um and so anyway all that to say i have now you know spent the past three or four years flying that machine all over eastern africa and doing aerial photography work that looks at our ecosystems um we're really close to being finished with a 200 page aerial photography book oh, um, really? that looks at kenya's wild ecosystems oh, from amazing. above yeah yeah 
That's so that gonna be we're hoping that I'm hoping that it'll come out kind of middle of next year, um, if not definitely in time for Christmas 2023. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, well, right we'll on. we'll look out for that. And make sure yep. we yeah. share it for sure. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. That so that's a little bit of the kind yep. of how things mm. came to be and the the work that we put in Modern Husband yeah. Volume Eight. Mm. Um, you know, a, a lot of that was sort of pieces uh, from the the aerial photography work yeah. that I've been working on for the last several years. Tell us about the Black Leopard. Oh my gosh. So, um, I don't even know where to start with that. <laughs> I got really lucky a few years ago. Um, and I mean, I don't, I, I really even struggle to it's tell like a, it's a story. It's like a mythical beast. It's a mythical beast. There are very few of them in the wild. There's some, how, many, the, how many you think? So I think in, in Kenya, we probably have six to 10, mm. um, now that we've kind of ID'd where that anchor core population uh, and those genetics exist. In India, there's large, there's another anchor core population. And then across Southern Africa, you see the the, the genetics pop up every once in a while. Because it's recessive, isn't it? Yes. It's, it's, mel a, it's melanistic. It's recessive. It's, it's not only recessive, but um, in order to get a black leopard, which is typically spotted, very camouflaged in the landscape, um, you have to have two recessive genes coming together mm -hmm. as it's well. like gingers. <laughs> yes, fair enough, Byron. Byron is all fair about enough. that. <laughs> and what I was getting ready to say is, is it is Kissed an by fire. It is an okay. immense handicap as well. Ginger so, or black leopard? Black. Both. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Anyways, it is an immense handicap. I'll let you fill in the blank. Um, because these, you know, let's say a cub is born yeah. as a black leopard. Um, you're amongst two other, maybe three other cubs in, in a litter. Um, very few of those are going to survive to adulthood. Being a black leopard on the savanna or in the sort of northern deserts of Kenya is not an advantage. No. It is it is very, very difficult for once those cubs kind of go, begin weaning off their mother's catches uh, and their mother's hunts, man, for them to make a kill. Yeah. They've either got to embed themselves into a pretty serious forest where they can, you know, mm. find some camouflage yeah. in the dark patches, or they're not going to survive. And so, not only is it a series of recessive genes, it's also a huge handicap for these leopards. So, when you see, which is very, very rare, uh, a black leopard in real life, it's a pretty remarkable experience. So, for me, I got incredibly lucky. My parents, um, who also still live in you know the middle of America, came out on safari with me in Kenya um, for a week. And my mom was like, well, we want to go flying with you. Well, mom, I can't strap you to the <laughs> paraglider. You're 65 years yeah. old. Like, you can't run fast enough. It's, this is not feasible. And so we ended up hiring a helicopter for a day. A friend of mine runs a helicopter company in northern Kenya. And um, we hired a helicopter the other day, and we were going to kind of do this tour of northern Kenya that I hadn't been able to do, um, and that was either inaccessible or just too dangerous to fly yeah. in the paramotor. And um, and so we get basically you know 15 minutes into this this flight, we left just pre-dawn from a lodge up kind of right on the edge of the Likipia Plateau, mm -hmm. and um, we get about 15 maybe 20 minutes into this flight, and the helicopter pilot. Um, basically pulls up the helicopter as quickly as he can. I mean, we're, you know, we're cruising along the, the Savannah mm. and all of a sudden we're nearly upside down and there are every expletive that you can imagine being shouted from yeah. the, the, you know, the front seat. 
And he's like, Black Leopard, Black Leopard. And he's basically right off yeah. the left side of the helicopter, seeing this Black Leopard running off of a, uh, on the side of more or less near vertical cliff. And so we come around, um, and sure enough, here's this beautiful, wow. full-grown Black Leopard who, a little, like, off kilter for a second because we've got a big, you know, yeah. helicopter that's making a, lo a load of noise, but very quickly calms down and continues doing what it was doing, which was hunting hyrax on this rock face. Oh, really? And so we got to hover, you know, probably a hundred meters from mm -hmm. this black leopard, watching it take out hyrax on oh, this near vertical, cool. vertical rock face for about 30 minutes until we were like, the fuel stop is... We're going to run out of fuel before we get to... So we ended up having to leave it, but it was this really remarkable experience where my mom and dad are sitting in the back seat. They've, A, never seen a leopard. <laughs> B, have no idea what they're looking at. Yeah. And they're like, oh, look at that cool black cat. That's a, you know, what yeah. a cool thing. And um, and so, yeah, we just had this amazing experience. So I have this series of, of images uh, of the black leopard from the air, which will end up going into the book mm -hmm. because it is it is an aerial photograph yeah. of a you know very rare... Is, I mean, I guess it's the same species, but a very rare cat yeah. overall um, of it hunting hyrax That's uh, cool. on, on this rock face and incredibly lucky. And actually, funnily enough, a few years ago, or actually this was last year, I think I um, was coming across a, a similar area in the Lickapia Plateau driving about, you know, 70, probably 60 miles an hour on a dirt road. You driving 70. I was driving 70. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. It was fast. Not I was 60. I was I was ready to be home. We had been filming for a month. Old lead foot Bobby. Oh yeah. We had been filming for a month. I was so tired. I was ready to be home. I had five hours of driving ahead of me. And I was just flying down the dirt road. And the next thing I know, this another black leopard jumps out no right in way. front of me and just barely clipped the tail uh, of the of black leopard with the the front fender of the the truck. And I, just this moment of sheer pain. I almost ran the truck off the road, like slamming on the brakes so quickly. Um, but sure enough, I've I've been lucky enough to see Twice. two uh, two black leopards. Did in my you life. have credence playing while you're driving? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> 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 I'm not good with downloading my songs, so once I get out of network, I pretty much have one song on repeat That's for ages. Fine. It's a good song. Yeah, it was the only song since I then. For three days. Yeah, since then. Um, <laughs> There has been a fantastic scientist uh, in northern Kenya based out of Impala Research Center who has gone and tracked this anchor core population of black leopard in, on the just kind of on the edge of the Lakipia Plateau into Samburu. Um, and he's done a fantastic job. Really cool young Kenyan scientist who has deployed camera traps kind of all across that Amazing. region looking at that, that anchor core population. And I think we've kind of come to the conclusion that there's somewhere around 6 to 10 adult black leopards at the moment kind of in that ecosystem which is pretty cool yeah really really cool i think there's three major cities in the world that have big cats in them la is one of them sure delhi is the other one i sure. think nairobi is the third isn't it big leopards yeah, yeah it might be it so. might be yeah. so yeah i mean i live right on the edge of nairobi national park in um in nairobi which is which is right on the edge of Nairobi. It's the largest yeah. urban game park in the world. And I, I mean game park, yes, it's fenced on the edges, but like, you know, you've got big cats, you've got eland, you've got all sorts of gazelle species, you've got zebra. Um, no elephants typically are coming into that ecosystem. Just it's not really where they belong. But um, yeah, you've got huge prides of lion that exist right there on the, the edge of Nairobi. And you've got leopard populations there as well. Good anchor populations of leopard in Nairobi National Park. And there's a study done a couple of years ago, and I don't, don't quote me on this, but 
what they found after collaring several of those leopard in the national park was that a majority of those leopard spend a majority of their time outside of the park okay. and in well, eating people's dogs and stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> eating people's dogs, <laughs> wandering through Kibera, which is one of the world's largest slums right on the, the oh, edge wow. scavenging of and... scavenging, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then moving to and from ecosystems that exist kind of right on the edge of the Rift Valley. Huh. Uh, and so they, they migrate kind of through my neighborhood on a, on a regular basis. And we have a, a bunch of kind of camera traps set out within the neighborhood and all on a whatsapp group chat mm-hmm. like hey we got a leopard today make sure the dogs are sleeping oh, yeah cool. um, yeah it's yeah we're definitely in an urban wildlife area where i live it's pretty cool amazing yeah, yeah. i'm guessing that when you started doing all the aerial work was that when you started to switch over to really see stuff as landscape scale and ecosystem scale conservation yeah, definitely. I mean, there was a real kind of moment for me there where once you get above those landscapes and you have more than five minutes on a, on a quick hop flight or like a, you know, let's say you're going up to dart an elephant or something in a helicopter, mm-hmm. you don't really have time to like look at the landscapes while you're up there. You're up there for a quick yeah, mission and, and you're it's fast, it's fast. Furious. everything's moving and you get your job done and then you're back on the ground. But with the, with the paramotor, what's really cool is I have basically three hours of fuel. Um, and so I have, and I can go 40 to 60 miles an hour really over the landscape. Um, and so you have a good amount of time to carry, to, to cover roughly a, you know, large tract of land and you get to spend a good amount of time up there and kind of assess what's going on and start to make sense of, oh, here's a boundary. Here's migration corridors around that boundary, et cetera, et cetera. And you yeah, you get to like the time to actually savor it and make sense of what's going on. Um, and that to me was when I started to kind of make sense of like, oh, this might be why we're starting to see these declines is because the habitat on the edges of what are gazetted conservation areas, whether that is a national park or um, uh, a national reserve or some sort of like permanent wildlife conservancy, the edges and peripheries of that are all being converted to different types of land use versus a wildlife conservancy or a, a natural habitat. It's very visual. Very it's visual, very clear, very yeah. easy to I see. Think we're prob- probably a lot of people have seen those images before where you see some sort of park and then a fence sure. a, f- a fence line or a farming area. That's the, mm-hmm. like an agricultural area. That's what you see a lot. And then a fence line and then a national park and you see this just destroyed landscape. Sure. And then habitat, which is what you imagine wild habitat to look like. Sure. And that's what you're talking about. And, and I'm talking about that definitely in, in particular. On, a, on the edge of a lot of those ecosystems, that's what you see. But let's say you move up to northern Kenya where a lot of that land, so I'm going to say... of that land would be considered conservation land, but it's community land. Okay. So it's not, it's not this sort of gazetted. Like like community conservancy. Like a community conservancy. Exactly. And, and if, if you're not familiar with what a community conservancy is, it's sort of the backbone of East African wildlife conservation when it comes to preserving landscapes outside of a national park or a gazetted conservation area, because it's, it's the community who have run those landscapes, lived in those landscapes, 
sites for hundreds of years. So if that's Maasai or if that's Samburu or if that's Turkana, Burana, these sort of um, tri tribes that we have kind of scattered all across the country, they've existed in those landscapes well before any of us were around. And they've before conservation, the, before was, conservation was, word, was ever but, a thing, yeah. correct. And so community conservancies are those sort of those groups, those tribal uh, communities kind of coming together and going, look, we, we understand the value of wildlife uh, and it's sort of our you know, prerogative to say we want to conserve these lands in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and so a lot of our, our ecosystems across the northern rangelands of Kenya are community conservancies. Um, and, and what we're seeing in a lot of those areas um, is, is some conservation actually occurring. There are some habitat um some habitat changes which are occurring, but also at the same time, some habitat conservation and, and preservation, which is occurring. But we're seeing also a, an increase in livestock. And so one of the things that we I can That's see... A, a lot of a cultural thing there. Very That's much probably cultural worth thing. explaining to people who don't know that. Sure. So let's say, you know, in rural rural northern Kenya, um, we don't have access to banks. We're, you know, three to four days walk from any sort of marketplace. And so a lot of the the communities will actually have their, their sort of wealth, their value that they create while they're on earth stored in either like a cow, a livestock, or some sort of goat sheep. Um, and so you'll see these large chunks of, of um, like, we see hundreds and hundreds, thousands of goats and sheep, which would be, you know, a community sort of bank account in yeah. a way. Um, when things get bad, they can, you know, basically kill one of those animals and that will feed the family. Um, when things are good, the, you know, they're getting fat and fat and fat, having babies, that bank account increases. It's almost like a, like putting your money in a bank and seeing some interest occur, mm. but it is the, without bank. inflation, I'm just realizing because a goat's always going to feed the same number of people. Yeah, that's probably but true. $10 isn't. Ten do, yeah, that's, that's actually true. It might yeah. be an inflation proof method. Sorry, the complete yeah. side note, but yeah. I just think. Yeah. yeah. As we sit here in the, you know, highest inflation rates. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it's it's a real big integral part of these communities. But what's what's occurred is because there aren't other livelihoods really available. Um, it's either pastoralism or pastoralism. Um, the number of goats, um, particularly, I, I target goats and sheep and shoats, which is a combination of shoats. Never of heard the of that. Before. Yeah, it's a combination of the two. Can they, can they breed? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I would like reckon they can. Yeah. I would reckon huh. they can. Um, shoot. A shoat, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to look, look out for <laughs> yeah, the next time. <laughs> um, that population, when you look at 1966 and, or 1977 and, and 2016, that same period which I mentioned that we saw a 70% decline yeah. in our wildlife, we also saw uh, a, an opposite increase uh, in, in our sheep, goat, shoat population. Correlated? Very, very correlated, I think, because they go after the same rangeland. So they, they use the same area. Cattle are a slightly different story across northern Kenya because cattle and wildlife kind of have a much more symbiotic relationship. Um, they, they go after the same rangelands, but they don't eat the grass all the way down to the stock, which is an important designation that sheep and goats typically pull the root structures out of the, the ground when they're grazing. And they don't browse either. Cattle. And they don't browse, yeah. Um, and so... So anyway, we, we, you know, from the air, one of the things that I can very clearly see is overgrazing when it comes to these huge groups of uh, goats, sheep, and shoats moving across landscapes and basically 
desertifying them, um, pulling those root structures of, of what was traditionally savanna grassland out, uh, and then immense rains come and it washes all of the topsoil that that rain that the that grass stock would have held in place. So is this becoming permanent desert? So this is becoming almost a near permanent desertification wow. across northern Kenya. And you can see that very, very clearly and the associated soil erosion very clearly uh, from the air. Um, and when you're sitting there looking at that, there's it's it's a bit of a dark scenario because not only are wildlife not finding the things that they need once uh, once those landscapes are pretty much gone, but neither are the humans because those goats and the the cows need those those same grasses. So it's this like kind of series of overuse on the landscape that's really putting both human life and wildlife in in jeopardy across northern Kenya, and that's something from the paraglider I have thousands of images of this sort of ongoing desertification across northern Kenya. Um, obviously rain and climate is a big part of that. We're yeah. seeing um, dramatic, exacerbates the uh, dramatic changes over the last 20, 30 years to our rain patterns, um, which typically are pretty stable. And that exacerbates that whole desertification process. Um, so, you know, in a year of good rain, obviously we see a little bit more grass making recoveries. In a year of bad rain, we're seeing more desertification added to the, the process. So, yeah, it's a kind of a sad part of the story, but it's it's something that I'm seeing very regularly. Tyler and I were speaking to a Maasai scientist uh, when we were in Kenya last year, and he was saying that one of the one of the, these conundrums are exactly what you explained about the store of wealth here is that as a country, Kenya has become wealthier and some of that has filtered down to these various people in different tribes, but the store of that wealth, and a lot of that has come from the tourism industry, which is a huge part sure. of the Kenyan economy has translated into more mouths to feed. And I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about goats and cattle and shows and shows <laughs> but that's that's i mean how do sure. you break that cycle because we're, we often talk about you know pulling people out of poverty by creating more wealth and more income but here's an example why we're actually creating more wealth and income might in the long term be pushing people back into poverty yeah, I don't know if I have the answer to that question i, I mean thought you the, would bobby that's the endless, <laughs> that's the endless question though right yeah. is like Obviously, we want wealth inputs into those communities, but but there has to, we have to figure out, and I think this is we as in the royal, we all of us together as a as a world have to kind of come together and go, what what can we do to create alternative livelihoods? What what can we do to to prevent the loss of these landscapes and these grassland ecosystems that support humanity and wildlife? I don't know the answer to that because it's the magic ticket, right? We need some creativity in that space to try to figure out a way forward. We definitely do. I don't know. I don't know. Pause. <laughs> your dog is my, my. I don't know. If the, I don't know if it's picking up on the mics, but your <laughs> dog drinks so much. He's, he's kind of like a camel without a hump. <laughs> he, uh, it's like listening to ten dogs drink. Yeah, he he will. I mean, I think he probably will in a single sitting drink a gallon of water, and then he'll go out into the woods, and you won't see him. And then you kind of catch a glimpse of him and he'll be peeing and it will last about <laughs> three and a half minutes. And I'm like, how do you? I think I he just drinks until the bowl's empty. Oh, no, 100%. That's exactly <laughs> what he does. That's exactly what he does. Oh, he's, he's a good dog, though. He just drinks a lot awesome of water. Dog. He's like a horse. Yeah, he is kind of like a horse. <laughs> now he's going to come dribble all over. Yeah, exactly. Are you done? Yeah. There we go. All right. 
So where's what direction is your work taking now? Because you obviously had this phase of your life, which is definitely not a phase that's over, because I know you said you're about to fly when you go back, um, that definitely defined that period. It has, has that then gone on and changed again with the kind of work that you're doing from the early work you're doing in the sort of refugee camps? Um, sure. So I, I guess I'll preface that with... Um, a few years ago, four, four years ago, actually, to the date, um, my girlfriend, who I spent all that time kind of exploring Kenya with and who would introduced me to those landscapes, uh, passed away in a paragliding accident. Um, so something that was very, very close to home to me, something that like I had introduced to her and kind of started to show her this sport that made... Um, you know, it sort of made me who I am. Um, and she had been on a lot of those expeditions with us and um, would sit on the ground and be like, this is not good enough for me. I need to be in the air. I want to yeah. I want to be right next to you as you're photographing these things. And so we were, you know, trying to get her kind of trained up to be, to, to go paragliding. And she ended up crashing and with um, an instructor from Europe and they both passed away. Um, and so that was, that was kind of four years ago. Um, just recently, um, I had my own accident, and I, I ended up crashing um, uh, pretty pretty severely in Savo, which is an ecosystem on the kind of eastern side of the country, um, and broke four vertebrae in my back and um, collapsed my lung, and then kind of broke, a, you know, did something bad to my hand. I'm not entirely sure what to this day what it was, but so I'm, I'm kind of I'm I guess. I'm 11 months past the 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 back break and the the crash on my side, and so at this point I'm kind of trying to figure out what um, what this next stage looks like. I haven't flown since that accident, oh, okay. and because it's um, given you so much, but obviously it's, it's taken, taken a tremendous amount. Um, and so the last 11 months have kind of been physically putting me back together after that accident, but also kind of coming back and dealing with a bit of the emotional trauma that mm -hmm. occurred, you know, obviously after Kim had died, um, and trying to kind of like make sense of how those landscapes, um, are, are healing all the way around. So if you, you know, if you go back to me kind of coming out of those refugee camps, um, those landscapes gave me a fresh breath of air and sort of this like reason to be in a way. After Kim had died, it was a similar scenario where, um, I talked about this the other day actually, where being in the wild and being in, in, in natural spaces, I began to kind of like put my life back together after Kim had died. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of trauma that comes with that sort of accident. And I think for a long, long time, you're not okay. You're just not like, there's no way. Um, and as I started spending more time in wilderness um, and being in these big landscapes after Kim had died, I started to see these these species, whether it was a plant or or you know a, a, a lion or a leopard, that were at similar stages of their life cycle that I was. Um, so that's you know, a really and, beautiful way of looking at it. And and you know so right, you go through this sort of birth, growth, sort of fall and loss, and then back to death and then back to growth and rebirth and, and kind of go through this process over and over and over again in life. I mean, it's kind of this endless process of something has to die for something else to give birth. And I, I, I found that piece a little bit um, coming back from the refugees camps 
after Kim had died, I started to see these species which, which were at the similar lifespan as me. And I kind of started to feel that, like a little less alone in that grieving and that, that process of kind of coming back to life after Kim had died. And that was something that wilderness had given to me. Um, and so part of the flying and part of the aviation and the photography was, again, this sort of attempt to give back to these landscapes and do something that, you know, hey, I, I want to be able to show the beauty and awe that, that nature has in these spaces because, you know, if it wasn't for those spaces, I don't know if I'd be here today. They gave me a reason to be, they, they kind of showed me that I wasn't alone in the process and that there was this kind of beautiful sort of embrace that occurred within the natural world um, in the recovery from Kim's, process, from Kim's death. And so I think I'm in kind of in that process now, kind of recovering back from my own accident um, in this space where I'm kind of trying to make sense of what's next. I still have probably 20 to 25 images on the book that I need to get done. Um, I'll be back um, in the air, hopefully, uh, the very beginning of December in Kenya, which will be 14 months on from the accident, to finish out the rest of those images and to kind of finalize the rest of the, the book. Um, and uh, and then from there, the, the sky is kind of the limit, right? I think I will move into a space where experientially, uh, and personally, I want to share my experiences in those spaces with other people. So if that's kind of an increase in some of the, the, the guiding, the safari guiding, to be able to kind of share what wilderness has given me personally back to somebody who would be sitting next to me in the Land Cruiser, you know, looking at lion for the first time or looking at leopard for the first time or being in this space, um, that might be a possibility. But I do want those experiences to be a little bit more more intimate and a little bit more personal um, than just kind of showing them on a screen to somebody elsewhere. So, Bobby, what a brilliant life story mm. and uh, a beautiful view of the world. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, definitely. For sharing that with us and, and everyone else who's listening. Yeah, definitely. Tyler, do you have any more or are we good to wrap up? I think we're good. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. I know. Well, but we're just going to, I just want them on again. Yeah. <laughs> Next yeah. time we podcast, uh -huh. it's going to be in Kenya though. Yeah. Yes, please. 100%. Yeah. Well, what we need to do is we need to have a couple of different mics. One of us and then one of like the wildebeest yeah, migration. We can, we, totally. we can point right yeah. next to us. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, please. That's a high unit okay, impression well, for Tyler. <laughs> in case anybody was yeah. completely unaware of what that good, whooping actually. in the it background was. Pretty good. Was. Pretty good. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Bobby. And I can't wait to spend more time with you at yeah. some point, hopefully, on the content. Definitely. Thanks for having me, guys. Cheers. Cheers.